We're going to dismiss our children for Children's Church. That's third grade and below. And uh, as you make your way out, the rest of us will be this morning in Hebrews chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Hebrews 3, which we read for our scripture reading. And as you're turning there, I'll get us set up a bit. Personally, I've lost track of how many people I've known over the years who have professed faith in Christ, have increased in the knowledge of Christ, have served in the church of Christ, only to eventually deny Christ. For me, it's meant former roommates, it's meant close personal friends, it's meant church members, it's meant mentors. It has meant students. It has meant even seminary professors. Once professing faith in Christ, increasing in the knowledge of Christ, serving in the church of Christ, only to eventually deny Christ. It is a tragedy. It is a sober tragedy that some who profess faith in Christ do not persevere in faith in Christ. A very, very serious matter, one that no doubt God wants us to understand better. No doubt one that when we understand it better, we might be able to pray more appropriately. We might be able to help one another more effectively. But one we do need to understand. I know I can say that God wants everyone in this room to better understand this matter because it's addressed on many occasions in the Bible. And this morning we'll see it in Hebrews chapter 3. This call to persevere in faith in Christ. And this warning that in fact it is a real danger. This matter of walking away from Christ. And so in Hebrews 3 this morning. We are going to hear a, a call to carefully contemplate Christ. A call to carefully consider and contemplate Christ as supreme, as our great Savior. Now, as we do this, there are some features you'll be able to notice, and, and I want to point them out to you ahead of time so you can uh, take note of these. This isn't really an outline because we're just going to look at the whole chapter today. We're working our way through a chapter a week. But some features that you'll want to take note of when we look at chapter 3 regarding this carefully contemplating Christ uh, would be these. Number one, you'll, you'll notice that there is this firm but compassionate summons to, to hold on to Christ. In one sense, if you want to say, what's chapter 3 about? There, there is this firm yet compassionate summons to hold on to Christ. Might be a good way to capture the whole chapter. Another feature to observe as we work our way through this this morning is this reminder of Jesus' superiority. That Jesus is better. If you want a theme for the book of Hebrews, it could be Jesus is better. Better than everything, better than everyone. Therefore, he's worthy of your trust, your dependence. Well, Hebrews 3 doesn't, doesn't slide us on this. It, just like the other chapters, it, it highlights that also. He's better. He's worthy of our, of our worship and our contemplation. Another feature to observe this morning would be the fact that he's going to remind us, the author of Hebrews is going to remind us from history of the great danger of unbelief. Unbelief, even when you see God at work and you've experienced even the work of God and yet to 
turn from that living God is a very dangerous thing. It's quiet in here, isn't it? This is great. We, this tells me we need a whole new heating and air conditioning system that doesn't sound. This is awesome. It's very fitting. I didn't call for It's not going to turn on, is it? Good. Because <laughs> if it does, I would want it to be just at the right time. So Robbie's sitting over there. So on my cue, turn it on. I'll, I'll do this. <laughs> if you've never been here before when it turns on it's not a pretty thing so um, anyway it is rather fitting that we're so quiet in here today because Hebrews 3 is one of those warning texts that maybe does call, call for some quietness it's a sober text but we have to know that it comes from a God who loves us enough to tell us these sober things regarding following his son so This is a good providence for us. With these things in mind, I want to direct your attention to the passage itself. And let's go ahead and get to work, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, we didn't get very far. I'm going to stop already. I have preached one sermon in my life on the word therefore, but I'm not going to do it today. Therefore, he's saying in light of what I've been telling you about, and the most recent thing he's been telling us about in chapter 2 is, so good, the priestly work of Jesus, that Jesus is the high priest. And what does the high priest do? The high priest goes to God on behalf of the people and makes atonement. The word that he uses is the word propitiation earlier uh, or at the end of chapter 2. He talks about how Jesus goes and he made propitiation. He made satisfaction. He, He satisfied the just requirements of God on behalf of those who would believe in him. Remember, we know from other scriptures that because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, we have earned condemnation. We've not earned the favor of God. In fact, we have earned judgment from God. And so we stand guilty before God. And this is bad news. The great and good gospel news is that God sends his own son to absorb the wrath that we deserve. That's why he went to the cross to make propitiation, to make satisfaction, to make atonement, just as is fitting for a high priest. And that's what we learned about. And so now he's going to pick up that theme. Remember, we added the chapter divisions for convenience. He picks up that theme and he says, in light of Christ's high priestly perfect work, he says, therefore, now back to chapter 3, verse 1, holy brothers... I can't help myself, but even the fact that he calls us holy brothers is because of the propitiation, because of the work of Christ. We learned about that in chapter 2, verse 11. It's only because of the work of Christ that we could be considered family members. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, you who've heard the gospel, you who who have believed the gospel, You who share in that, and here's what I really want you to see, and I want you to underline, because I know that's what the author of Hebrews wants you to see, if not underline those two words. Here's our command. Consider Jesus. In light of what He's done for us as our high priest, making propitiation for our sins, He says, consider Jesus. As one translation puts it, think carefully about Jesus. 
contemplate Jesus. Specifically, His perfect high priestly work. Stop what you're thinking about. Stop where your mind is going. Stop everything and consider Jesus. And certainly stop considering perhaps going elsewhere to have your needs met. To have your relationship with God enhanced. Stop that and consider Jesus. Contemplate Jesus. Think carefully about Jesus. And then he tells us about this great Jesus even more. The Apostle... An apostle, remember, as I say so many times, because it's used so often in the Bible, one sent with authority. Well, he's, he's an apostle. He's the ultimate apostle. He's, he, he's sent with the authority of none other than God himself as the eternal son of God. The apostle and high priest, he's picking up that theme from chapter 2 of our confession. Consider that. Consider him carefully. In light of the danger he's going to talk about of walking away. Don't do it. Consider Jesus. Consider him carefully. He's the apostle sent from God with the authority of God. Don't go somewhere else where someone else is claiming somehow an association to God. No, don't do that. And not only that, he's our high priest. Where else can you go to have propitiation, to have atonement, to removal of guilt? And the high priest of our confession. Why does he say that in that way? He's using this this kind of terminology that would talk about common agreement. This is common, basic, universally agreed upon Christian truth. It's our confession. It is what we confess. It is what we're all willing to say. This is what Christians everywhere are willing to say. That Jesus is our high priest who makes propitiation for our sins, who is the perfect sacrifice, who makes perfect atonement. That he is, he is the ultimate apostle. Which is summarizing what the book of Hebrews is about. It's, it's about Jesus' supremacy, Jesus' sufficiency. What Christian wouldn't embrace that is the implied implication there. This is what we all agree to. And so consider him. Consider him. Consider him, how about, according to verse 2, who was faithful to him who appointed him. He was faithful to him who appointed him. And if you would, just have your eyes move and move up to chapter 2, verse 17, and we have some elaboration on this or a reminder about this. Jesus is the one who was faithful to him who appointed him. How about 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God. See, God appointed him to be a high priest, but he had to become a human being in order to be a high priest on our behalf, so that he could do this in service of God. But that is what he was appointed to be and appointed to do. Why? Verse 17 ends with, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This should give us reason for pause. Stop and carefully consider Jesus. Faithful to the plan and purpose of none other than God the Father. And he was faithful to what that purpose was. That he truly and genuinely became one of 
us so that he could truly and genuinely be one who could be the, uh, a mediator, one who could be a high priest and go and make atonement. He's unmatched. He's unrivaled. Carefully, carefully contemplate him. Gives us good, good reason for pause and consideration. Verse 2 goes on to say, Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. House, as we will see, if you read the whole thing, it's indicating people. The, the people are the household. And so, just as Moses was, as he led the people of God in the Old Testament, and so he's going to make a connection. He's going to say, you know what, Jesus is like Moses. And if you read in the Old Testament, Moses is unique. He's unique among all the prophets as one who would care for the people of God. And, and so he says, you know, in, in a certain sense, in a very strong sense, in fact, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. And you can't help but think about Moses, Moses without thinking about the law. It's probably even why he's bringing it up here. When you think Moses, you think law. Who else was given the law of God to give to the people of God as this great uh, mediator in that sense? It, it, Moses is unrivaled. In fact, isn't it interesting? The law of God, again and again and again and again in the Old Testament, is called the law of... It's the, called the law of Moses. He, he has great privilege because it's not Moses' law. He didn't make it up. This is the law of God, but, but he, he's so uniquely called of God, it's called the law of Moses. And so he says, just as Moses was faithful in all God's household, and indeed he was uniquely faithful, without peer faithful, and then, and, and he's probably bringing this up because we have a primarily Jewish audience who's thinking in these terms. That's different from us. But we can appreciate what he's saying as Christians who, who believe the whole Bible. And so we're not just New Testament, we're Old Testament. We say, you know, that makes sense. We, we know that much about Moses. We can appreciate that. Then it comes to verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Shocking! On one level. Not shocking on another level. Not shocking to Christians. But it might be shocking to someone who's thinking maybe they need to go back to go to the legalistic system and they think, you know what, this grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone thing really isn't working out for me. I like law better. I like legalism better. And, and I might go back to Moses. Where it was said, we will do your law, God. We know they didn't. And he's saying, you know, Jesus is a lot like Moses. But he's very, very different. <laughs> he's very, very different. He's worthy of more glory than Moses. And then he gives an illustration to explain. Verse 3. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Okay, we can, we can understand that. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And then verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, 
I underlined Moses as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken to be spoken later. We'll get back to that. Then verse six, but Christ, I underlined that too, to contrast verse five is faithful over God's house. And then I underlined the last three words for to, to see the point on the text before me as a son. Moses faithful as a servant. Jesus faithful as a son. Different category altogether. Privilege, unique, preeminent, therefore worthy of being the object of our faith, the object of our trust. Who are you going to trust? The servant or the son? You're going to trust the son. In fact, if you have opportunity to trust the son and you trust the servant instead, it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. And then, as a matter of fact, going back to verse 5, earlier in that verse, I skipped, I skipped over it initially. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Well, he tells us a little bit about how he was a servant to the people of God, the house of God. I love it. Verse 5 ends with, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. You want to talk about Jesus? Or, or maybe since we're talking about Jesus, you want to talk about Moses? Yeah, Moses is awesome. What a great servant Moses is. Let me tell all the Christians, and let, let me remind all Christians that Moses is extraordinarily special. Oh, yes, because he was used by God to give the people the law of God, so much so that it's called the law of Moses. But let me tell you something really special about Moses. He's a servant in that. What does it say? To testify to the things that would be spoken later. Yeah, Moses is a servant of Jesus. <laughs> because he would testify to Christ. You see how crazy it would be to leave Christ. You see how crazy it would be to go back under some sort of system of works righteousness. When the very one you're professing to be in allegiance to spoke and, if you will, pointed you so that you wouldn't look at him, so that you would look at him. It's awesome. You might want to jot down John chapter 5, verse 46. It's just a, a great, great text. John five forty-six. just listen to what Jesus says. For if you believed Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote of me. How about that? Put that in your hermeneutical pipe and smoke it. <laughs> your interpretive pipe is what I mean. Yeah, Jesus says, Moses talked about me. All right. We should look to Jesus. We should look to Christ. We shouldn't look to the shadows. We shouldn't look to the pointers, if you will. We shouldn't look to Moses, other than to look to Moses so he can say, go that way. It's no wonder that Jesus, in Luke 24, opened up the disciples' minds, if you will, to open up the scriptures to say, guess what? I'm the hero. It's about me. Trust in me. Well, at this point in time, I have to tell you, I'm just having a great time. <laughs> because 
this is just encouraging as a Christian. And you think, this is, a, this is awesome. What a great encouragement this is regarding the supremacy of Jesus. And, and no doubt if you're a Christian, you're saying, yeah, this is great. But sometimes we're in places in our life that we don't think this is so great. And he's addressing that issue in this book. And so now let's slow down and, and maybe, if need be, have a little bit of the wind knocked out of us. Because verse 6 makes a startling declaration. Verse 6 continues on by saying, And we are his house. We are his people. We belong to his family. And then he gives this conditional statement that rocks your world. We are his house if... Indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And in one sense, that puts wind in your sails. And in another sense, depending on where you are, it just takes all the wind out. Because there's a condition. There's an if. To appreciate it, we should at least see, we hold fast our confidence. It's using, using this in a very objective sense, not in a subjective sense. It's our confidence, and somehow it's subjective, emphasizing that it's me, even though it's not less than that, it's more than that. He's using it objectively, our confidence as in Christ. Same way with our boasting as in, object of our boasting, Christ. Our hope as an object of our hope, Christ. And yes, subjectively, we hope and we place our boasting and our confidence in Him, but He's not using it in that sense grammatically here. But the if is sure pronounced, isn't it? If indeed we hold fast. It's if indeed we hold fast to Christ. Then you're part of the house of God, part of the family of God. Then you're truly a son with inheritance rights. What we see here is the Lord being burdened. He's giving us the book of Hebrews because he's burdened for us. He's specifically burdened for people who profess faith, show signs of life, and end up not continuing. This is very much reminiscent. In fact, it's the exact same theology, but it's very much reminiscent of Jesus and what he taught in the parable of the soils. The sower goes out to sow, and there's all different sorts of responses, and there are even signs of life. And some of those signs of life end up becoming dead. He's talking about that same issue here. The point being underscored clearly is it's not okay to once see Jesus as your everything and then eventually drift away from that. It's not okay to go elsewhere. It's not okay to go back. It's only okay to consider carefully and keep considering carefully the one and only one who can make propitiation for your sins, the high priest whose name is Jesus, who is none other than the God-man. And so he's pleading with, challenging, forcefully, oh yes, carefully, pastorally, professing believers, not altogether different from us, saying, be careful. Yes, you're a son with all the inheritance of a son in a first century kind of mindset. If you hold fast. Implication is, 
But if you don't, it's not okay. By the way, we're not going to go there now and it'll take us a while to get there. But in chapter 11, we call it the Hall of Faith chapter. Why do you think chapter 11 is in there with all of those people who went through such hard times? It's because to a person, while they weren't perfect, they persevered. Their faith was shown to be genuine. And so we have the Hall of Faith chapter to show us what genuine faith looks like. It continues. It goes to the end. And you say, how does this fit with salvation being only by grace, only through faith, only in the finished work of Christ? It fits in this sense. Genuine faith in the finished work of Christ keeps on faithing. Genuine belief, okay, let's be a little bit better here grammatically. Genuine belief keeps on believing. By definition, if you're believing in Christ, you, you, you keep believing in Christ. Or it's not really believing in Christ. Trusting, depending. So by way of application, he's, he's calling them to, to, to persevering faith, genuine faith. That's why we have what we have in chapter 3, verse 1. Consider Jesus. Keep considering Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 1. What did we hear there? We, we, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And so pastorally, I, I, I got to say, Consider Jesus and consider Him carefully. And keep considering Him. And all the inheritance is yours as a privileged member of the family if you hold fast. And I realize this brings up all sorts of questions, questions that we're not going to deal with even this morning. It is only by grace, only through faith, only in Christ. In fact, in our very text, it's talking about His propitiatory work, His atoning work. It's all Him. But if faith is genuine, that faith continues. There is a category in the Bible, unmistakably, for, you want to use the fancy theological term, for apostasy. Short-term faith. It's not genuine faith. And he's concerned that a church like a church like this one, would have people in it that wouldn't know this to be true and would think it's okay to go elsewhere and everything is okay. It's not okay. And you say, that sounds really narrow-minded. Well, you know what? If you're the one and only God who made everything and you only have one son and you sent him to live a perfect life, die a sinner's death and rise again from the dead and ascend, and if you said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him, I guess that's narrow-minded. But God is a monotheist. He only believes in one true God. And that's narrow too. And so let's think rationally. Let's think biblically. Let's think clearly about this. Now, as we continue on, he gives some Old Testament support for how serious this is. In verse 7, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... 
can't take time to elaborate, but it's so interesting that he's going to quote Psalm 95 and he attributes Psalm 95 to the Holy Spirit. So that would be great support for the inspiration of the Old Testament, that it comes from God. And obviously, if the Holy Spirit is saying this, we should listen to this. It's not merely the psalmist. But he quotes Psalm 95 saying, today, marking urgency, right? Also marking the fact that there's a limitation to this. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, verse 10, I was provoked. That that means greatly upset, God says. I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. It's not an occasional lapse, an occasional kind of thing. They've not known my ways. Verse 11, here's what God says regarding Israel in the Old Testament. As I swore, here's God under oath. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. No promised land. I showed myself to be faithful. There was clearly an object to faith that they could see and know and trust. And they wouldn't trust me. And they wouldn't depend upon me. And so in my wrath, I judge them. Verse 12 then says, take care, brothers. Now he's bringing it back to us. You say, what, is this, what does Psalm 95 have to do with us? What's so interesting, by the way, just real quickly, is he, the, the, the whole wilderness experience, the psalmist in Psalm 95, years later, picks it up and uses it as a moral lesson. And now the author of Hebrews is saying, you know what, that moral lesson is still applicable to us. Let me teach you this moral lesson. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Isn't it interesting? Evil and unbelieving go together leading you to fall away from the living God. The threat is real. Let, let, let verse 12 permeate your thinking and your mind and, and, and settle in. Take care. Be careful. And isn't it interesting, this emphasis that comes up sometimes in the Bible, the living God Falling away from an idol is no big deal. Just burn it and make another one that looks even more like you. If we're talking about the one true God who is alive, it is indeed a dangerous thing to fall away from Him. And He's saying that with care and compassion, but great sobriety. Evil and unbelief. What's interesting in light of all the Old Testament background, this evil unbelief is repeatedly, don't miss this, refusing to take God at His word. Refusing to hear God and listen to God and do what God says. That's evidence of unbelief, which is evil. Because we're talking about none other than God. So isn't it interesting, the unbelief isn't necessarily saying, well, you know what, I, I now believe in, in a pantheon of gods and I reject Yahweh, the one true God. It's not necessarily that. It's practically that, but it's not necessarily confessed that way. 
The evil unbelief is God says this and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Oh, you're an unbeliever, are you? Well, then the next question I have written down here is what do we do to avoid this calamity? What, what, what do we do to, to avoid this? Well, I, don't, I might have a tendency that I think I'm going to move to Montana. Sorry if you're from Montana. Some of you are. Um, where else? I don't know. Utah. None of you are from Utah. I don't want to go there either. <laughs> I'm going to go. I'm going to head for the hills in some unknown, undisclosed place that's politically correct. I'm going to go hide somewhere and, and create my own little monastery because I'll be able to do this by myself. Because my real problem is, my real problem is there's all these influences around me and they distract me and they take my focus away from the one true God. They take my focus off of Jesus. And if I could just get alone, I think I can pull this thing off. What's interesting, or something like that might be a solution. What's interesting, he's, he, he, he says something very, very different. Look what he says in verse 13. Are we in verse 13? Did I skip anything? Okay, 13. But exhort one another. Oh, don't head for the hills. Now, the solution to this, a solution at least, is one of the necessary solutions is, is a one another solution. But exhort one another. Challenge one another both positively and negatively. Confront and encourage. Exhort one another every day. Oh, you might want to draw a line. That's reminiscent of verse 7. Today, the urgency there says, you know what? Exhort one another every day. Because there is urgency involved. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. While you still can, in other words, that none of you, that's the pastoral burden coming out to professing believers, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How about that? Don't go isolate yourself. You know what you actually need to cope with this, among other things, uh, would be we need we need one anothering, exhorting one another with a sense of urgency. And so he says every day. How about that? If this isn't a call for the need for the body of Christ and believe, being in the believing community, I don't know what would be. To how about this? In order to avoid apostasy, what do you need? Well, I think I could come up with a list. But one of the things that's got to be on the list is you've got to be in a place where there is exhorting regularly to the point where he says every day. To say, you know what, don't do that. That's that sin. You'll, you'll ruin your life. Or to say, instead do this. This is what you need to do. In fact, let me remind you to consider, to consider, oh, oh, carefully. Jesus, the high priest, every day, consider Jesus, cling to this Jesus, remember Jesus and his priestly work and what he did and who he is. You've got to remember him. I need that kind of stuff every day. You need that kind of stuff every day and to say, no, that's not right thinking, that's sinful thinking. No, that's sinful acting. Because the danger is real. You probably know people just like I know all kinds of people who once professed, increased in knowledge, served, and now deny. And you say, I don't want to be that woman or that man. One thing you need, among other things, 
is you need one anothering. Do you know other Christians? That, that should be where I start. Do you spend time with other Christians? Are there other Christians who are more mature than you are that you spend time with? Are there other Christians you spend time with who would even dare of exhorting you in any way, shape, or form? And you say, well, I know you. Well, you know what? I'll do my part. Trying my best this morning. But it's a stretch to make this a one-anothering. I suppose on one level it could be. You've got to be connected with some other believers so you can be doing your one-anothering and they can be doing it in your life too because... Crashing and burning is a bad thing. And remember the pronounced if that's in our passage. We need each other. And we need each other to ask each other about more than just the game. You don't even have to ask today because there wasn't one yesterday. It's a gift from God and His providence. very important it's very important because verse 14 then says for we have come to share in Christ here we go second conditional statement if indeed we hold our original confidence that's confidence in him firm to the end it is what it is I, I, I'm not even going to elaborate on that We need each other. I will say, flag that verse because you're going to need to remember that verse when we get to chapter 6. Verse 15, as it is said. Now he's going to quote Psalm 95 again, so let me quote it to you. Today, urgency. Today, if you hear his voice, and oh, by the way, you have. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? What's he saying? Who had experienced the supernatural in their life? Yep. They'd experienced the supernatural in their life. And they walked. So don't depend upon a supernatural experience. Depend upon Christ. And carefully and carefully and carefully yet again. Contemplate Him. And with whom was He provoked for 40 years? Yeah, those people who had experienced the supernatural in verse 17. Was it not with those who sinned, with, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? You can bet your bottom dollar it was. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But those who were disobedient? Uh, yep. Evidencing unbelief. 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Unable and unbelief provide a good little wordplay there for us in our English translations. 
they're unable to enter because of their unbelief. Please do notice something that we went over pretty quickly earlier, and I didn't mean to, so I'll have to ask for your, I'll have to apologize and, and, and say, I, I, do want you, I do want you to go back to verse 13, and then we'll wrap this up. Please take these words to heart, and please think about what he's saying here. We're going to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened. So there's a hardening effect by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin hardens our hearts, and then we're deceived, and before we know it, we're apostate. So I've got to deal with my sin regularly. In fact, I not only need to deal with my sin personally regularly, I need you to help me deal with my sin personally regularly because there's a hardening effect of that sin. And before you know it, I've got a hard heart to Christ. And you don't just fall out of a tree. You've got to climb the tree first before you fall out of the tree. So he says, every day. Context is carefully contemplating Christ. So when someone's in sin, you got to go to rescue them. You got to go help. Because the lasting effect of the sin, and then more sin, and then more sin, and it's harder heart, harder heart, harder heart, harder heart. And before you know it, they used to lead the Sunday school program, writing the curriculum. And now they deny Jesus. And so we have a ministry to one another of helping each other to see how bad sin is and to see how great Christ is. And you say, I thought, I, I thought the Bible taught perseverance of the saints. It does. Philippians 1.6 is true. It also teaches that if your faith is not a lasting faith, it's not a genuine faith. And God uses means for preservation, including the means of one anothering. And so we need to be involved and take these things seriously and love each other enough to be willing to do these kinds of things. Listen to these words we've already heard as a great way to, to summarize what we've heard and take these words to heart and my prayer is that God would just use this like a, 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 a great and gracious ointment on wounds or as a great and, and, and powerful and sharp arrow into your heart if need be God in his wisdom will use his word just listen Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Hold fast your confidence and boasting in your hope. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Hold your original confidence Firm to the end. Today, if you hear His voice, and you have, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
Lord, I just am asking that you would use your word, this word of exhortation to exhort. Thank you for your loving kindness that you care about us so much that you would give us a chapter like this in your Bible. Thank you for caring not to leave us. And now may your people care enough about one another to not leave one another alone in sin. But that we would every day look to Christ ourselves and turn from sin, but also every day help others to look to Christ and to turn from sin. Thank you for the sufficiency of the one who provides perfect atonement and have us be so delighted by him according to the work of your spirit in our hearts that we would not turn somewhere else. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.